we have this mistake in the whole Anglo-Saxon philosophical tradition. We think that the facts are just out there and that in a fair fight, they'll win. But they're not out there. They have to be produced and they have to be pushed into the fight if they're going to have a chance. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies and strategies that can be to and populists like Donald Trump for the next four years and the next 40. About 10 days ago, Angela Merkel announced that she would step down as the leader of her Christian Democratic Union this coming December and not seek re-election as Germany's chancellor in 2021. This is a seminal moment in Germany's post-war history. With the exception of Willy Brandt, of Konrad Adenauer, of Helmut Kohl, Merkel has shaped her country the most in the post-war period. And it is difficult not to have a lot of admiration for her. She made it to the very top despite being a triple outsider, a woman in a mostly male and often chauvinist party, a Protestant in a party traditionally dominated by Catholics, and somebody from the country's east who had grown up under communist rule until the age of 35. She also clearly has a steadfast commitment to some of the principles that have guided the Federal Republic since its founding. She deeply believes in the rule of law and liberal democracy and in the European project. And yet, I fear that Angela Merkel will be remembered rather less kindly by history than most now believe. And the reason for that is that she is not a visionary leader, not somebody who is able to guide her country through rhetoric. And as a result, she has failed to confront the three biggest crises that Germany and the European continent has faced in the last 12 years. First, when the euro crisis erupted, it exposed the fundamental construction flaw in the euro. You cannot have a currency union without a political union. And so some people wanted to move towards a political union. Others thought you need to throw weaker countries like Greece out of the euro in order to make it manageable. Angela Merkel didn't do either one or the other. Instead, she always kept giving Greece and other Southern European countries just enough money to tide them over, but not enough money to thrive. And not enough political reforms to actually fix the underlying problems. As a result, after 10 years of significant suffering in Greece and some other southern European countries, the fundamental flaws remain the same, ready to be exposed when a populist government takes over in Italy or the next economic crisis hits. Secondly, the refugee crisis. Its origins are a little bit more subtle than people think. In the summer of 2015, Merkel was frequently criticized for not responding quickly after a xenophobic attack and condemning it, for telling an asylum seeker teenager on live TV that she could not help her stay in the country. So when lots of refugees were coming in in the summer of 2015 and there's no clear legal options for how to keep people who are ready in Europe out of German soil, Merkel did what she usually did, which is to run after public opinion when it had seemed to swing in favor of refugees. As soon as she did that, opinion swung back. And Merkel, as the pragmatist, followed in its path. She made deals with Greece and Turkey 
to make sure that refugees no longer could get to Germany. But because she never publicly explained her course of action, because she never told Germans that the summer of 2015 would not be repeated under her watch, and because she was unwilling to speak openly about some of the real challenges that the influx of refugees had caused, it made it easy for the far right to claim that she wanted to replace the German population or that she was blind to some of the challenges. And as a result, the AFD has become the first far-right party since 1945 to establish itself as a firm fixture of the German political system. Third, and perhaps most importantly, Merkel has done virtually nothing to deal with the rise of authoritarian populism around the world and especially in Central Europe. A few years ago, it might still have been possible to build a coalition to ensure that the EU stops subsidizing Viktor Orban with its funds as he turns his country into an autocracy. It may even have been possible to start proceedings to expel Hungary from the European Union. Merkel didn't push for any of that. In fact, she even tolerated that Orban's party, Fidesz, would continue to be a member of the European People's Party, her own faction in the European Parliament. As a result, the very legitimacy of the European Union is now in doubt. For German citizens do by and large understand why they should pool the sovereignty with free citizens in France or Italy, but they do not understand why they should have to share the sovereignty with an aspiring dictator in Budapest or Warsaw. The irony of Angela Merkel then is that she would have made an excellent German leader in more ordinary times. But she happened to be Germany's chancellor at the one moment since World War II in which Europe and the world would have needed Germany to have real vision. And she was repeatedly incapable of providing that. And this also means that the biggest danger now facing Germany is not a change of course. It is that her successor will continue to believe that politics as usual is a way of standing up for the liberal democratic values which, for all of her flaws, Angela Merkel clearly believes in. I just spoke to Tim Snyder and we had a great conversation. Tim is the Richard C. Levin Professor of History at Yale University. He is the author of many best-selling books, including On Tyranny and his latest, The Road to Unfreedom, Russia, Europe, America. When we discussed a bunch of things, we have a lot in common. We also have some diverging views. And so we talked, for example, through whether or not fascism is the right kind of prism for understanding what's going on at the moment. We talked about some of the causes of this populist moment and whether we can actually do something about them. And for once, I may have ended up being the more optimistic person in a conversation. So if that's not a reason to stay and listen to what we talked about, I don't know what is. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Glad to talk to you. So listen, you know, I have a reputation as a pessimist. I think the situation is quite dire in the United States. I think it's even more worrying in many parts around the world. You may be the one person in this space who is more pessimistic than me. Why do you think that 
the right frame for thinking about some of this stuff. It's not just authoritarian populism. It's in some ways actually the road to fascism. And what hopes do you think we have of standing up against this moment? So first of all, I think the reason I see things the way I do is that I'm I'm coming from two places which are not America in 2018. I'm coming from the history of the middle of Europe in the middle of the 20th century. That's what I work on. And so I take it for granted that people who are not so very different from us can find themselves in situations which are much starker and much more terrifying. I take for granted that Germany in 1941 or the Soviet Union in 1937 are normal, are possible, are places that humans have been, which means that they are places where humans can go. The second place that I come from is Eastern Europe. I spend as much mental time in Russia and Ukraine as I do in the US, or at least until very recently that was the case. And when I look at Russia and Ukraine in the 21st century, I see a logical extension of certain tendencies that one already sees in the United States, especially having to do with the media and with inequality of income and wealth. And so that helps me, I think, to see what's possible. I've been struck by this as well. But obviously, when you grow up, you sort of look back at something like the Nazi era and look at the horror that came out of it. And the easiest way of making sense of it is to say, well, this was just a different time. It was different people. It was so long before I was born. Obviously, this wouldn't be possible now. And the more you study it, and you've probably studied those periods more than, than most, the more you recognize how similar people are across time and their basic instincts and their basic emotions and so on. And I have found myself struck over the last few years by some of the parallels. Now, I think the differences are at least as important. But what strikes me, for example, is that in a way I can make sense of why center-right deputies in Germany in 1933 ended up voting for Hitler, because actually at a certain point, the risk of not doing so was very high. You did have a real risk of going to concentration camps quite quickly. When I look at the last couple of years and try to make sense of why congressional Republicans have enabled Donald Trump so much, and again, I personally am not sure that it's helpful to compare Trump to anything like that, so I want to make that clear, but even for the moral horror of Donald Trump, maybe much lesser, the risks of standing up to him are also much, much lesser. I mean, the most that a congressman has to lose is that he you know, has to go and make a bunch of money on K Street or something. So why are so few people standing up to it? And I think there, just the basic calculations of wanting to be in power, of rational choice, what's my higher payoff and so on, kick in in the same way that they did back in those days. And so I see those perils. I guess where I'm a little skeptical is that where people may be the same, overall society seems quite different. We live in a much more affluent society, which has a much deeper democratic tradition, which has been, for all of the traumas of the last decades, much less traumatized than, for example, Germany had been in the Weimar Republic, uh, that had been much less accustomed to totalitarian rule than Russia and the Ukraine had in the 90s. So what do you make of those differences, of those disanalogies? I think just in terms of the point of view from which we start, I think it's more helpful intellectually, politically, and even ethically to start from a position of humility and to start from a position of possibility than to start from a position of American nationalism or American exceptionalism. We don't have to even mention Russia, Ukraine, or Nazi Germany. We can just stay very close to the history of the United States, and one will very quickly see all kinds of things from right-wing politics in the 30s and attitudes towards immigrants then, or the history of slavery and our treatment of African Americans, which 
could and should shock people out of the view that somehow democracy in the United States is a given. But that said, I mean, I think it's also important to look for parallels, not because things are exactly the same. I agree with you completely that they're not, but because the past can reveal some of the conditions of the present that we might not notice otherwise. Like, for example, that globalization has an arc and that globalization tends to lead to just the kinds of contradictions that we see now, or for that matter, in the 1920s, or that changes in media are unpredictable. I mean, in the early 20th century, everyone assumes that radio is going to be positive and enlightening. For that matter, in the 16th century, everybody assumes that the printing press is going to be positive and enlightening. Everyone assumes in the early 21st century that the Internet is going to be positive and enlightening. But history tells us that that just ain't so, that new communications technologies have hugely unpredictable consequences. That would have been a good thing to remember about the Internet, for example. That isn't to say that Internet is just like radio or the printing press. It is to say that, broadly speaking, there are some patterns, and one of those patterns is that new communications technologies tend to lead us in places where we don't expect to go. Now, you're of course right that people are facing fewer risks now than they were in Germany in 1933, at least after February of 1933. But the general tendency to adapt in advance, which historians of Germany, I think, have quite rightly drawn attention to, is one that one sees in the U.S. as well. We have already normalized a whole lot of things in the last two years that in 2016 people would not have regarded as normal. And the question is, you know, when does the tendency to normalize stop? And the answer is never. People, as you say, take advantage of opportunities right up until the moment where they start being afraid. And by the time they start being afraid, it's already too late. So the political lesson, the general political lesson is you have to start doing things when you're not afraid and you have to ask yourself what's normal for you as opposed to what everyone else finds normal at a given time. What, what do you think is one thing that has been really normalized in the last two years in the United States that has surprised you? Is there anything where sort of reality outpaced your worst expectations? No. <laughs> no. Going back to the beginning of your question, I'm not an optimist or a pessimist. I don't try to see things one way or another. I'm a historian. I think there's a huge range of possibility. And the reason I tried to get out of front of things when I wrote on tyranny was to alert us to the broad range of possibilities so we can do things to try to constrain some of the worst possibilities. That's what I see. And my gut feeling as a historian is that many things are possible that we don't see. I put this in a similar way often, and that is an important methodological point, that even really early on, this debate before Donald Trump had gotten elected when you know, I was sometimes being described as the most pessimistic person in the room. I think there was this real debate of people wanted proof positive that democracy is in danger. And I said, well, that's getting it the wrong way around. I just need to show that there's real reason to fear that it might be in danger. And if that's the case, then we should go and get a very thorough doctor's checkup and do what we can to ensure that the disease doesn't progress. Whereas the yeah. default epistemological position that people took seemed to be, well, unless you can prove to me that democracy is in danger, this seems like a silly point. And it's a little bit like right, saying, you know, right. you have all of these symptoms, but no doctor has yet definitively been able to prove that this is cancer. So just assume it is. And then once you're dead, you're no longer sick. And you can say, well, look, I was right the whole time. See, I'm dead. <laughs> right. And that's where that logic leads. But I would push the point even further. I mean, this is what I call in the new book, In the Road to Unfreedom, this is what I call the politics of inevitability. The idea that somehow there is this thing called democracy, which is somehow floating along on the currents of history, and it doesn't matter what we see or do, it's somehow just there and will somehow advance into the future. 
danger. I think that's entirely the wrong way to think about democracy. Democracy means rule by the people. And if people don't want to rule themselves, then democracy will go away. I mean, that's what the Greeks said a couple of thousand years ago, and they were absolutely right. It's not my observation or yours to say that democracy, if it's not taken care of, will lead to oligarchy where oligarchs manipulate people with myths. This argument was literally made by Aristotle. I mean, so the idea that democracy is a thing, I think, is the problem. Democracy is a process. But that isn't just a negative observation. It's also a positive one, because what it suggests is that if we realize that democracy is this thing that we make ourselves, we could actually make democracy in the U.S. better than it is, which I think is necessary. I mean, I think the whole framework that we defend the things that existed back in 2016 has to be wrong because the things that were in 2016 made 2018 possible. I think the right way to think about it is that we're not just defending American democracy, we have to be making American democracy. One of the sort of really, I think, intellectually lazy and and frankly outrageous attacks on the notion that populism is dangerous is this idea that's often spread by a set of serious scholars, actually, that, oh, you know, the people who talk about the dangers of authoritarian populism, they basically just love the status quo and are trying to conspire in whatever way they can to stop political change. And that may be true of one or two scholars in the space of authoritarian populism, but I can't actually think of any. I think anybody who's serious in this field recognizes that the rise of authoritarian populism has deep roots, and that these deep roots include a counter-reaction against real injustices, and that, A, for normative reasons, we don't like those injustices and we want to see them redressed, but B, even if you're just talking about saving the political system, and I do think that liberal democracy is superior to its alternatives, even in imperfect form, you got to actually address them. And so that's always struck me as a sort of strange argument, but it's one that has quite a bit of currency. Yeah, I agree with everything that you said. It's exactly right that people say that. And I would just add that a problem that scholars have as scholars is that they try to stay away from ethical questions. And without ethical questions, it's very hard to make the kinds of commitments that are necessary to actually complete the argument. So I worry about what you're calling populism too. In the US, I would think of it more as a sado-populism because I think Trump is actually out to hurt rather than to help the people who vote for him. But I do care about the things which make populism possible. I care about the fact that Americans spend so much time on the internet looking at things that are not true. I think that can be fixed. I care a great deal about growing inequality of wealth. I also think that can be fixed. And I think procedurally, and this is obvious, procedurally, we'd be better off if we were more of a democracy. But we can't make those arguments unless we reveal some of our ethical priors, right? So I think, for example, that factuality, equality, and democracy are good things, but it's very hard to make arguments about the future without revealing some ethical priors. And I think that's a place where scholars understandably get stuck because we are trying to maintain a certain position of objectivity and we confuse objectivity with not having an ethical position. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think the only way to break out of this argument is to argue about the future and to say, look, it's not that we're defending a status quo or treating this normal. It's that we know that the future is coming and we think it can be a lot better as well as a lot worse. So let's argue about the future a little bit. You mentioned three areas, the internet and the sort of false information that is so prevalent on it wealth inequality and income inequality, and then uh, the institutions of democracy and procedural things. So let's start with the internet. How would you describe the nature of a problem we now face? Let me start from a completely different end, like in the spirit of thinking about the future rather than just analyzing the present. The internet is a presence which takes advantage of an absence. 
And the, the absence is local news. This is a consensus among people who study this all around the world. When local news goes away, what happens is that people start distrusting traditional journalism as such. They start talking about the media and they become more open to conspiracy theories or other kinds of general explanations that come from far away. So looking at the U.S. elections in 2016, we had the odd spectacle in October of 2016 that a third of Americans believed that Hillary Clinton was running a pedophilia ring out of a pizza parlor. That was a fiction which was generated by the emails of somebody they didn't know worked up by Russians in St. Petersburg. In other words, it's not just that it's not true. It comes from very very, very far away. So I think the base problem is not just defending against the internet, it's more producing factuality where people live so that they can trust factual material so that it comes from people who are around them. I think that's the way that democracies have started defending themselves. I'm a little skeptical of that. I mean, I think there's a lot of reason to think what you're thinking. And and obviously, the death of local newspapers in the United States is a huge problem. The fact that a lot of local television stations and networks are being taken over by things like the Mercer Network is very concerning. I agree with all of that. I wonder, though, whether we're confounding two different things, which is that in the past, there was a lot more local news and society was a lot less polarized. And we think that those caused each other. But what may be driving the problem now is polarization more broadly rather than the lack of local news. I'm thinking about this in part because I was at a far-right protest in Germany a few weeks ago, because I'm writing a story about the transformation of German politics. I was there as a journalist, obviously. And I was standing at one point next to a local reporter who works for the newspaper that's published in that small German town and who covers all of these protests and so on. And there was tremendous anger and hatred towards him. Because why does he cover these protests? Why does he make the town look bad? Why does he exaggerate what's going on here? None of which he did. I mean, he's an objective, serious, old-style reporter who simply writes down what he yeah. sees. But the partisan polarized anger against him was extreme. Now, I think that was driven in many parts by new media ventures. It was driven by things like the Epoch Times, which is a sort of German far-right media network, which is becoming quite influential quite quickly. But there wasn't an absence of local news. There is a good local newspaper there. People recognize the local reporter. But the polarization meant that they think everything he writes is fake news anyway. Yeah, but Yasha, that, I mean, that, that's my point, right? I mean, the, it's not that local journalists are popular any more than doctors have to be popular, right, when they have bad news or the postman when he brings bad news. But the crucial difference is the one you identify in your question. They know the person. They know he's a real person. They may not wish he didn't cover X and covered Y instead or that he wrote in a different way about it, but they know that he's a real person and they know that he was actually at the protests. That's the crucial thing. I mean, they know that, but they think that he's just, you know, Merkel's puppet who's there to tell lies about them. So it's not clear to me. Look, some people might think that, but when those people win the argument and he goes away, then things are much worse, is my point. Right. So a government or a society which keeps local news going is pushing against the general idea that everybody is somebody else's puppet and nothing is really true. I'm not saying it's a magic potion which solves everything and makes everybody happy. But what happens when you have local news is that at least you have some basis of local conversation, which isn't driven entirely by specters that are hundreds or thousands of miles away. The other thing about this is like once that guy goes away, 
or once local news goes away, it's very hard to bring it back because people's habits are then changed. They're then reconditioned into the polarization that you're talking about, which is largely driven by the way the Internet itself works as opposed to anything that's happening locally. So I agree that if the local news guy went away, things would undoubtedly get worse. And I'm sure that he does an important service. I'm just struck by the fact that if we're trying to explain the spread of fake news and the lack of trust in institutions and in facts, that even in contexts where you do have a good local press, you get the same phenomenon. Yeah, sure. But it's not the only thing, but it's a necessary condition. And the reason I mention it first is because I worry that we're too much on the defensive. So in this broader subject of the public sphere and how it's filled up with fiction, I think it's an important first step to remember that you have to actually create the facts. You can't just say that fiction's wrong, that fiction's wrong, the other fiction is wrong. You actually have to have institutions which create facts and can pump some of those facts into the public sphere so at least they have a chance. Because in our current situation, the reason why fictions win is that if you have 215 fictions in the room, then one of them is going to win, right? If you have 215 fictions and three facts, then at least the facts have a chance. So, I mean, we have this mistake in the whole Anglo-Saxon philosophical tradition. We think that the facts are just out there and that in a fair fight, they'll win. But they're not out there. They have to be produced and they have to be pushed into the fight if they're going to have a chance. But I agree with you, that's a necessary, not a sufficient condition. In order for the rest of this to work, we also have to get a handle on how the big platforms handle the news. We have to get a handle on how we ourselves treat our screen time, et cetera, et cetera. I think that is more broadly known. So that's a helpful distinction, I think, that this is necessary, but it's not on its own alone. Because if people do have this local news source, they do consult it to some extent, but most of the news they get is national, and most of the news they get is through social media, yeah. it may simply clips the local news, that the main presumptions about the world are from the national news, and the local news contradicts it, they don't learn to grow skeptical of the national news, they grow to learn skeptical of the local news. So what can we do about changing how people perceive the national news? What can we do, for example, about the fact that when I walk down the aisles on a German train now, on a German S-Bahn, sort of, you know, local railways, I see a ton of people browsing through Epoch Times, which is something that really struck me the last time I was there. It's really a new phenomenon. How do we deal with that? Yeah, there are short-term things and there are long-term things, and there's a philosophical thing. The philosophical thing is that, you know, if one is on the left or if one is in the center, we have to get away from the position that everything's a matter of opinion. This is the damage that some parts of the left have done to themselves, because if everything is just an opinion, then the people who have the best spectacle are going to win, and the people who have the best spectacle are not left-wingers sitting in universities. The people who have the best spectacle are right-wingers with the Breitbart or right-wingers with, um, you know, the SDSPA here in Austria has its own closed alternative reality television channel. There's no competition from the left for that. So at least philosophically, we have to say, look, we think there is actually something like factuality and that we have to push for it. I want to double down on this, if I may. This is really interesting to me. So I don't know if you saw the series of sort of fake papers that were published a few weeks ago. It was a lot of conversation about it. I wrote about it a bit both on Twitter and The Atlantic. So it was a rerun of the Alan Sokol hoax from the late 1990s. Uh, yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so these authors published these 20 papers, seven of which were published. And I think they were trying to make a pretty similar point. They're trying to say that, look, there's a whole bunch of academic journals that no longer have serious epistemological standards, which are all about subjectivity rather than trying to anchor different social facts in objective reality. And this is a problem. And what I was struck by 
is the unwillingness to do what you just suggested on behalf of not just the people who are invested in those particular corners of those fields, not just the people who like that kind of epistemology, uh, but serious scholars who care a lot about objectivity, who strive really hard to prove their claims in a careful manner. And I think they all felt, you know, the problem is that the critique of that kind of subjectivity is going to be exploited by people on the far right. And therefore, our task in this dangerous political moment is to circle the wagon, is to rally around these fields. And even for a lot of the people who attacked these hoax papers, who defended the journals that published these you know, pretty ridiculous academic articles, uh, actually are deeply critical of that kind of work. They somehow felt it was their duty in this political moment to defend it. And, and, I, and I wonder what you think about, uh, first of all, we share this view of what happened, and second, whether you think that, that that's one of the dangers in this moment, that we ourselves become tribalized in such a way that we're not willing to clean house on our side, not willing to say, hey, we need to get away from that subjectivism, for example, because we think it's going to be exploited in the short run by other people. Well, I'm going to speak this broadly because I didn't read the journal articles and I only know about it because I saw something in the newspaper. But I mean, I have a couple of things to say. The first is that it goes back to the question of ethics. Are scholars only objective in their own little field because that is the patch that is our patch? Or do we believe in objectivity everywhere, right? It's easy to believe in objectivity in your little corner because nobody cares about your little corner except you and your 10 colleagues. It takes a little bit more courage to say, I believe in factuality everywhere whether it's climate change or whether it's offshore banking accounts, I believe factuality matters everywhere, right? That's, I think, the step that we have to make is to treat epistemics as a kind of ethics. The second thing that I would say about this goes to something which you don't mention, but which I think is related, which is the whole business about free speech. I think when universities are challenged for not allowing free speech, et cetera, something very strange is going on. What I worry about is that on the right, on the far right, on the kind of annoying institution-destroying right, Free speech means I'm allowed to say the most annoying thing possible, which does the most destroying thing to your institution, i.e., you know, you have to invite my favorite Nazi pedophile to your campus or you don't believe in free speech. That is using free speech to destroy the purpose of free speech. The purpose of free speech is for us to be able to say what we think is true so that we can come to some kind of sensible conclusions in public and make better policy, right? I mean, that's the penumbra of the First Amendment. That's why the First Amendment is there. I take your point about the left. I think you're absolutely right. The left has to stop making it easy for the right. On the other hand, there's a problem on the right, which is that the right is also deliberately using free exchange of ideas to destroy the idea of the free exchange of ideas by only using it to try to spread ideas which people are going to find obnoxious and difficult. So in the academy, there are problems all around, but I think the, the answer to these problems is fairly simple. You know, that we, A, for, if we're on the left, we should think we believe in pursuing the truth, even when it's a little bit uncomfortable for us when we're out of our comfort zone. And if you're on the right, it should be, we understand that the purpose of free speech is not just to make trouble for people, but to try to actually pursue the truth. Yeah, that seems convincing to me. So I sort of slowed you down by doubling down on this particular piece, but you were speaking more broadly about how to battle the problem of false information at a national scale. So thank you. Well done. Almost no one ever remembers their previous question. So, <laughs> yeah. So there are a couple of other things. I mean, this is boring, but it's true. In the long run, it has to be education. If we want voters of the future to be able to use media sensibly, we have to get screens out of the classroom. 
I mean, there's a reason why everybody in Silicon Valley sends their kids to classrooms without screens, and that is because they want to create children who are able to deal with the mess that they've made. That has to be general policy. We have to give kids a humanities and civics education so that they have a chance of dealing with that reality later. If we give it to them when they're too young to deal with it, then how are they going to be responsible you know, readers and voters in the future? That's one thing that we definitely have to do. So there's philosophy, there's pedagogy. And then another thing is to get serious from the inside about how the machines work. I mean, we kind of have slept walk into this long encounter we have with the machines, by which I mean the internet and the social platforms. We treat them as normal when in fact we're adapting to a world they create, which is because of the way machine languages work, they're comfortable with an overflow of information. We're not. Code is comfortable with a whole series of binary choices. We're not. And what we've done is we've kind of sleptwalk into an engagement with the world, which is easy for computers to handle, but which is not so easy for us to handle. And so we need to think about that. I think we need to inject professional ethics into coding and into social platforms. We take it for granted that veterinarians or doctors or lawyers have some kind of professional ethics, but there isn't professional ethics inside coding really at all, as far as I can make out. And so we've seeded a whole bunch of humanity, you know, without really thinking about it. What would the broad principles of that kind of professional ethics look like? I know that nobody can expect you to have a sort of rule book written out, but do you have a hunch of what the sort of top three or five principles might be? Yeah, it's a funny thing, right? I mean, if you look at science fiction, like Asimov was thinking about this, you know, three quarters of a century mm. ago, if you're going to release robots in the world. The laws of robotics. Uh, yeah, what should the rules be, right? I mean, and I think the basic rules should be Kantian. I mean, we think it's wrong to treat another person as an object. But somehow it's okay for the computer to us as an object, right? We have no identity on the internet. There's literally nothing that prevents people, but not even really people, the algorithms they create from performing experiments on us continuously. You know, and if you and I are in a psychology experiment, there are rules about what we can do to each other, and they're mm. enforced. But if you and I are on the internet, psychology experiments are being performed on us constantly, and there are basically no rules about it as far as I can make out. So, I mean, starting from the notion that a person has an identity and the person doesn't lose his personality or his humanity when he sits in front of a computer, I think that would be a good start. And that's not where we started. I mean, with the internet, we started with a bunch of young, you know, forgive me, terribly naive libertarians who thought that all these problems would sort themselves out in the end. Some of the smarter of them have now realized that that's just not the case. So I wouldn't be qualified to get into the details of like just how you change the setup of Reddit or Facebook or whatever. But the people who run those platforms know perfectly well what they're doing. And I think it's pretty clear that the way that these platforms are set up can be changed. And the reason we know this is the history of radio and the history of the book. And the book itself caused a huge amount of chaos until we figured out how to make a book look like a book. What I think is that we haven't really figured out how to make the internet look like the kind of thing which works well with human minds. In fact, what we've kind of allowed to happen is the worst of the psychologists and the worst of the programmers to use the internet in ways which, if we thought about it for just a moment, we really shouldn't have let happen. So there's a lot that's been done in that direction. I think that covers the first issue pretty well. But I do remember my questions. I do remember the structure of conversations. So you said there was the internet and fake news, broadly speaking. There was wealth inequality. And then there was more procedural institutional issues. So on the second thing, how do you think that economic changes of the last decades have driven this authoritarian moment? Yeah, let me start from a very conservative position here or the position of my former self as an economist. I believe in markets. I think markets have very useful functions. Wait, I didn't know that to my shame. You used to be an economist? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a recovered economist. Tell us about the shameful past before you launch into your economic <laughs> explanation. The very first thing I did was study the Soviet economy. 
the very first paper I published was about industrial concentration or monopoly in the Soviet Union. My first job was at the Institute for International Economics in Washington. That's what I did before I took the turn to do the doctorate in history. So I don't think it's a particularly shameful past. I think like many things, economics in moderation is good. Some of my best friends are economists, but that's very interesting to know. I didn't know that about you. <laughs> no, I learned a ton from economists. The reason I started that way is that it's helpful to say that markets are good in certain conditions and then think about what those conditions are. What's unhelpful is to imagine that markets solve everything by themselves and that there's such a thing as a free market, which makes no sense. Only people can be free. Markets can't be free. Markets work according to the rules that we create. And one of the reasons we have Donald Trump and one of the reasons we have the Russian style oligarchy in general is that we've been very sloppy about the rules of the market in certain places. Like, for example, anonymous real estate deals, that's just sloppiness, offshoring with anonymity. That's just sloppiness. I mean, any serious economist would think, if my economics textbook is going to be true, those are the kinds of things where the rule of law has to be present and not absent. But because the rule of law was absent, then a figure like Donald Trump can emerge and a figure like Donald Trump can make contact with Russians and others who are also operating this kind of gray zone of capitalism. And part of that gray zone of capitalism and inequality is the ability of the very rich to offshore their wealth. You know, it's just not fair. And it leads to seriously unproductive consequences that the very rich in the U.S. don't have to pay taxes, whereas the middle classes and other people do, right? That's obviously going to be perverse. It's going to mean we don't have the revenue that we need. And it's going to mean that people feel that the system's unjust. And it's also going to mean that people are going to fall for an argument, which Mr. Trump himself made, which is, look, it's an oligarchy. It's unfair. We all know that. Therefore, you need to vote for an oligarch who talks like you. I mean, that was basically Mr. Trump's pitch. But that's an interesting point. And the way that you emphasize this, because I think there's this sort of temptation when we talk about economic aspects to try and explain what's going on in the idea that most people's lives must be terrible, because if they're willing to vote for something so extreme, it must be motivated by a sort of deep-seated rage. And now, first of all, I mean, I do think that there's a good number of Americans who have pretty bad lives, and there's a lot of Americans who feel like they're treading water and they're kind of angry about that. But, you know, I take seriously the argument that that, in its aggregate, shouldn't explain the extent of political rage we're seeing. Now, part of the explanation might be that part of his rage is also cultural and so on and so forth. I think that's important. But part of it, as you're saying, is about justice. It is seeing a political system that seems more and more rigged and feeling that the political elite isn't really doing anything about it. And what's striking is that though Americans are reasonably divided about what we think about capitalism, most like it, but there is certainly a cohort of people who tend to be younger and on the far left who dislike capitalism, who are willing to endorse ideas like socialism, whatever that means in the American context. But what's striking is that Americans are pretty united in disliking crony capitalism. But Americans are pretty united in feeling that big corporations, for example, are exploiting the system in various ways. And so I think when we think about what would be gained from more robust measures against tax fraud, from more robust measures against perfectly legal forms of hiding your money in tax havens and so on, is not just the actual economic differences it would make, it's not just the ability to tax people robustly and sustain a decent welfare state, it is also that feeling of injustice that people have being addressed and then therefore trusting the political system a lot more. I completely agree with that. I think that's extremely well put. The sense of injustice, which is grounded, leads people to try to go around the system itself. Like if the system is unfair, then you have to be unfair to the system by electing somebody like Mr. Trump, right, who you trust to be unfair to the system. And you can get rid of those emotions or at least dampen them 
by making the system objectively more fair, you also get more revenue, which means that you can do things for people, which allow them to have greater prospects for social advance, which I think is another deep part of the problem. It's not just that you think the system is rigged in the present. It's that you look out in the future and you're living with your parents and you have lots of student debt. It's not that your life is terrible. It's that you lack the ability which democracy needs and also which you know the American dream needs. You lack the ability to see a future which has prospects which are different and better than the present. It's hard to keep a democracy going without that feeling. And that's another reason why inequality is so important. That's a great point. So what do we do about that? What kind of economic policies do we need to respond to this set of factors? Yeah, you've already mentioned them. We've already talked about them. One of them is to try to close off the gray zones. Just by taking markets seriously and trying to make markets fair everywhere, we could do a huge amount. If we could get Delaware you know, and the other American states to get rid of the anonymous companies, if we could get rid at local level of anonymous real estate purchases, which are just used to launder money, if we could get hold of the dark money problem in general, especially when it comes to funding American candidates. And then you know, being a little more wishful here, it's a terrible mistake to think that corporations have free speech. Corporations are not people. Only people can have free speech. That Supreme Court justice ruling makes zero sense. And the idea that money is speech is also just not not the case. Speech is speech. Money is money. You know, so Citizens United makes zero sense. You know, in some distant future, perhaps we'll realize that, but I just want to say it as a matter of principle. So the first thing is the, you know, the gray zones. The second thing, though, and this is going to be often a completely different place, is using the state to make people have more equal prospects, which begins especially with childhood. You know, it's something which can be reconciled very easily with the idea of caring about families or family values. In order to have equality, people have to have equal prospects, especially early in life. That matters a huge amount. And we know, not just from the U.S., but we know from all over the world that that's something that the state can do. You know, so creating equality isn't necessarily a matter of the state giving you $100,000 a year. It could be a matter of making sure that we have good schools, that we have nutrition, little things like that, which make it much more likely that people can get through high school, can go to college, and et cetera, and look at the world as if the world holds prospects for them. So that's an interesting point to me because I think there's been a lot of pushback on parts of the left in the last years against the idea of meritocracy. It's very fashionable to say, you know, meritocracy, the term was actually invented in the 50s as a kind of caricature of a future order. And in the end, what we want is a truly equal society in which there's no hierarchy and meritocracy is just a way of sort of justifying it. And I think that captures something important, but also misses something very important. What it captures is something that's always been clear in the liberal tradition. John Stuart Mill speaks very movingly about the fact that if some Nero designed a 100-yard dash, which is entirely fair, and the winner gets vast riches while the person who comes in last is executed, that is not a good thing to do. That is a terrible way of setting up the world. So that insight is deep, that, you know, a meritocratic order that is vastly unequal and that treats the people who come in last very, very badly is indefensible. And, and that's absolutely clear to me. But we also know that societies always end up with some amount of inequality and hierarchy. That's been true even in the most totalitarian societies that supposedly had the goal of instituting equality, whether it's North Korea today or the Soviet Union a few decades ago. And I think when you think about what can justify those inequalities, not in some grand abstract matter of justice, but in a way that people in that society can actually recognize and live with, basic ideas of meritocracy are very, very important. Yeah. 
I think there's no way out of all this except for pluralism. I mean, the idea that you're going to get rid of inequality is obviously terrifying. But the idea that every amount of inequality is acceptable does not follow. You know, I think the aim is to find something in the middle where people can feel, as you say, that the life around them is somehow reasonable and that the people who are doing well are doing something that justifies their doing well. Part of the problem in the U.S. currently is that people quite correctly think that the people who are doing well haven't done anything which justifies they're doing well. I mean, I have a slightly different take, you know, than the camps that you're describing. I think that equality is important precisely because freedom is important. I don't think the two of them are actually in some kind of fatal tension. You know, I think that's a mistake of American political thought that you have to trade one for the other or whatever. I think on the contrary, if you care about people being free, which I do, then you have to help them create lives where they can actually imagine different possibilities themselves and try to produce those different possibilities, which means you have to build in a certain amount of equality, especially early in life. You can create the kind of people for whom that's possible. That's not going to lead to everybody being equal in the end, but it is going to lead to having a population which can imagine different kinds of things for itself and different kinds of things for its other. If you push inequality too far, then freedom also becomes, I mean, de facto impossible. So that seems convincing to me. The last thing I was just mentioned here in the sort of uh, litany of economic measures is the ways in which rich people in particular, plutocrats from dictatorships currently can actually buy citizenship in a lot of liberal democracies is deeply problematic. You can now essentially turn yourself into a Canadian or a British or an American citizen just through spending money. And some of the people who do that are the people who we should least want to be our fellow citizens. And I think that's a problem. But I want to dwell a little bit on the institutional piece. What do you have in mind there when you talk about those procedural causes, institutional causes of the problems we face at the moment? I don't think I have anything to say which any student of American politics couldn't say. First of all, a democracy, a real democracy, is one where the central authorities encourage people to vote rather than discouraging them from voting, trying to suppress the vote. We have a basic problem where one party tries to win on demography and the other party tries to win on voter suppression, which means that neither party is talking about policy as much as it should. We need to have a system where it's taken for granted that everybody should vote and where it's taken for granted that the authority's job is to encourage you to vote rather than one where you can compete on voter suppression. And then that's the central thing. I mean, after that, everything else is a matter of institutional structure. So let me jump in there. That's the main point, because I utterly agree with that. And, you know, I'm sure that you're about to also mention gerrymandering and a whole bunch of other things. Bingo. The thing that makes me a little skeptical about it, and I I mean, I I 100% agree with these things are scandals that need to be changed. But what's striking to me is that, you know, in political science and the social sciences more broadly, there's been the sort of institutionalist turn for the last 30 years or so years. And that means that, you know, for somebody like me who started his PhD in 2007, I was taught by a generation of scholars for whom it was obvious that institutions are the most important fact of political life and that you really need to think through all of these different developments through institutions Mm -hmm. and search for causes of social developments in institutional setups and so on and so forth. But what strikes me about the rise of authoritarian populism is that it's happening in Germany, in Sweden, in Poland, in Hungary, in the United States, in India, in Turkey, the institutional setups of those countries are about as diverse as the institutional setups of democracies get. And yet you Mm -hmm. seem to be seeing reasonably similar outcomes. And so, you know, undoubtedly it's important to deal with voter suppression and gerrymandering in the United States. But that to me, you know, if you fix all of those things, you get to electoral systems in which you actually also see the rise of authoritarian populism. So mm-hmm. I'm skeptical that it would make such a big contribution. Now, again, it may be a necessary, not a sufficient condition, but I'm struck by how little institutions seem to explain 
about the rise of populism, unless it is institutional features that all of these countries have in common. That's not true of the ones we've just been talking about. Yeah, I guess we can't have it both ways. You know, like you started the conversation by saying the thing that the U.S. has a long tradition and it has citizens who believe in democracy and so on. I actually take that point. So I tend to think that our problems are hidden from us in the institutions that we assume are democratic, but which are actually built in a much crankier and undemocratic period. Whereas the problem in newer democracies, which have often, you know, as you say, by design, actually have better institutions, they look better. The problem there is often a little bit different. So I'm going to accept the distinction that you made earlier in the conversation and say that I think the basic problem in the U.S. is institutions quietly driving people away from the notion that we're a democratic country and teaching people that you win in different ways. But then the second thing I would say is that whether the system is flawed or not flawed, you see the same things, right? You always see authorities who, as you know very well, who break the informal rules and be who take the undemocratic parts of the system and try to make those un undemocratic parts of the system work together. So I think it's always a good idea to formalize informal rules, and it's always a good idea to try to minimize how many undemocratic parts of the system there are for unscrupulous people to try to make work together. I mean, I take your general point, though. I agree with you completely. It, it's not just institutional design. It, there also has to be a kind of ethic or care about the institutional design. You know, one of the problems with the kind of scholarship that you're describing is that, like, it's true on its own terms, but if we just say, okay, we get the institutions right or wrong and that determines everything, then we forget that institutions go back to institutional design and institutional design goes back to ethics and goes back to contingency, right? And so mm. we have to care about the institutions. We have to think, okay, it's the institutions make us, but we also have to try to make the institutions. And in the case of the U.S., it's hard for me to see us going forward and having a better democracy without a certain amount of that spirit. That seems convincing to me. Before we close, I just need to get your assessment of where we're at in the United States. You know, I'm torn about it, to be honest. On the one hand, it's clear that we have normalized extreme rhetoric and behavior. I think the attack on independent institutions, especially including the intelligence community and the law enforcement community, has been quite extreme. I think the extent to which Donald Trump is supporting dictators over Democrats around the world is terrifying. I also think that there continues to be a robustly free press, that people are not being locked up for protesting, that Donald Trump has not managed to dominate politics in the sense of becoming much more popular, which has happened in lots of other countries in which authoritarian populists took power. There's a good chance of Democrats taking back the House in the midterm election. And it seems to me at this juncture, at least if you're going by the opinion polls, there's a good chance of Democrats winning the presidential elections in 2020. So I'm quite torn about how to assess this political moment. And one way of responding to it, perhaps, is to say, well, it's it's radically open. But I'd love to get your point estimate of where we're at and how this might play out. Okay, I'll quickly take down a few different points, because I agree with you that the picture is mixed. And I think the only way to clarify it is to try to make some categories. So in one category that you mentioned, which is the world, so the non-American world, clearly this has been a disaster. The fact that Mr. Trump supports foreign dictators is not just shameful for us. It has consequences in terms of how ethnic minorities are treated around the world. It has consequences for individual journalists, as we've seen very recently. It has consequences for what people in less powerful countries think is acceptable and think they can get away with. So we're in America, obviously, focused on ourselves for understandable reasons. But this has been a disaster for the world. The second thing that I would stress would be the American institutions. So a lot of Americans thought the institutions are going to save us. They certainly haven't, or at least not in the way that we would have expected. The Supreme Court 
is not going to be much of a check. The legislature, from my point of view, has not been a check at all. If the Congress is going to check Mr. Trump, it would have checked him by saying, look, we've had an unusual event. It seems that a foreign country has intervened in our elections. Let's first figure that out and then pass our tax cuts. But it turns out that tax cuts are more important than whether or not we're a sovereign country. So those checks have not worked. The checks that have worked are the ones that are more deeply written into the Constitution, which are the ones around the First Amendment, namely freedom of press. That's worked. And then the rule of law, which is the penumbra of the whole Constitution, that has also worked to some extent with the Mueller investigation and other things. The third thing that I would stress is that we are shifting institutionally away from democracy. That was going on before Mr. Trump arrived, and it's accelerated since the undemocratic parts are working together. You know, the Electoral College plus the Supreme Court is moving some basic institutions further away from American preferences and, for that matter, even American votes. And then the final thing, I mean, the thing that I would stress the most is something you raised in the middle of the conversation is I think Mr. Trump's most important domestic policy has been to spread doubt and to attack the truth. You know, the idea that that journalists are the enemy, but perhaps more importantly, his whole use of the term fake news, which is just American English for Lügenpresse. And here I am in Austria and in Germany as well. That's how people understand it. And that's an old Nazi term, which is now getting a lot more currency again, propelled by the far right. Exactly. I mean, it's the idea that the journalists are weak. We're going to call them the liars. We're going to say they're the lying press was a device the Nazis used in the 30s, and it's a device Mr. Trump is using now. I think that's his most important domestic policy. And that if that part succeeds, if we remain so epistemically polarized, and if we give up on the factuality, then all kinds of things are possible, which, you know, we wouldn't like to happen. Tim Snyder, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you two have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes, tell your friend all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.